0: You notice that clever little dance we did around the chair there. <laughs> I had no way to go. I was gonna my my only other option was go right off the side there. I am D S and I'm a grateful member of Alanon. IMD. I see some um, I saw some interesting looks. It's fun to look at the crowd when I'm gonna speak because the flyer always says D S and all, I, I know there were a lot of people out there wondering, I wonder what happened to D and who who the substitute is. Uh, yeah, that's really my name. Um, I wanna thank I want to thank the committee. The, uh, the committee does, you know, this is a lot of work putting one of these on, and it's it's a it's a sometimes a thankless task, and I really appreciate the committees um, that do these kinds of things that put these on. Um, thankfully, I have never been asked to serve. Uh, I uh, I would like to thank the committee for uh, for inviting me here. That would, however, be a disservice to the committee because the committee didn't do it. Wayne did. Is Wayne in the room? Do you all know Wayne? Okay, if you ain't tickled pink when I'm done here tonight, don't come after me. Come after Wayne. He should have known better. <laughs> it's, always, uh, it's always an honor and a pleasure to come here. This, has been a, this is a kind of a nostalgic weekend here for me because I've seen a lot of people that I have known before. I've seen people um, who have been um, instrumental in my life. Um, uh, there, there are some things going on in my life this weekend that, um, that make this a very poignant occasion. It's uh, one of the first times that I was ever asked to go anywhere and share. Um, I met Ellen D. Um, Ellen D. is now Ellen C. Uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she seems to be moving up the alphabet. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, but it, it was a, uh, it's been such a blessing. I'd. Heard her speak a number of times before then, but she was one of the first uh, people that I had seen speak that I got to really know on a personal level, and it's been a great, uh, a great honor and a privilege to know her for many years and to hear her speak many times. And she's been a, a dear friend to Carol and I. Um, and and the things, the things that people share that always, you know, there's always something in somebody's talk that stands out. Uh, last night, when Ellen was talking about control, and she talked about those genes. Um, I, that has put a picture in my mind that just will not go away, uh, uh, and, and I'm reminded of what my my first sponsor used to tell me about control because that was the most important thing in my life. I thought was being in control. Um, in in our Allen on twelve and twelve, when it's discussing cha- um, step three, um, and, and it's really irritating when people do this, but at the bottom of page twenty. <laughs> uh, It's on the left-hand side, it's the last paragraph, but it talks about control, and it applies to me personally, and it was drilled into my head, and that's one of the very few things that I can tell you, chapter, verse, and page number, where it is. Uh, But it talks about control, and it says this about it. It says, we only have to look at our many disappointments to realize that our control was at best rare, and more often, an illusion. Uh, And that has been the story of my life, you know. It's been the illusion of being in charge. You see, in my life, I've only ever had one problem, and that was not getting my way. I was born in a small town in Indiana. Um, I didn't much like it there because it was a small town in Indiana. I thought that I was destined for bigger and better things. Um, I, uh, there was not that I know of alcoholism in my family at that time. Um, I I had to uh, I had to go out and find my own. Uh, by the way, if you're in Al-Anon tonight, welcome to al- alcoholism. And if you're if you're new, uh, welcome to the family disease. You know, it's something that we have. It's not something that them that did the bad stuff does. You know, we have it too. It's it's called a family disease for a reason, and it's called Al-Anon family groups for a reason. Um, but you know, I was. Uh, I was uh, the name of that little town was Akron, Indiana, and that was one of that was one of my early resentments. I didn't realize it was a resentment at the time, and I didn't realize what a resentment was. But when I was 15, my parents thankfully divorced after um, you know that time of fighting. My parents had been married for 33 years. They had uh, my mother was pregnant 11 times, had eight kids, um, and uh, it, that was a miracle to me because they never acted like two people that would do anything that would you know. <laughs> I can say I'm in a group that understands, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they, they, just, they just didn't get along. Uh, and, that's, and that's an understatement. I woke up every morning with them arguing and fighting, and, uh, and to me that divorce was great relief. And then we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. Now, when I got to Omaha, um, I, would, people, I was obviously the new kid in the class. And people would ask me, where am I from? And I'd say, Akron, Indiana. And they said, say, don't you mean Ohio. Like, I was the damn dumb I didn't know where I was from, you know. <laughs> I just came from there,
1: you know. Um,
0: <clears throat> but, you know, that 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 bothered me, you know. Um, and I always, I, I you hear people from the podium talk a lot of times about not feeling like there were enough. And that was what I always did, you know. And the other thing that I always did was I always wanted people to look at me. But then when they started looking at me, I didn't know what to do, you know. I always wanted attention. Um. It, it has come to light that in my family there is a history of attention deficit disorder. Um, I may have been one of the early carriers of that. Um, we, my wife and I have a, have a granddaughter that is a textbook case. Uh, when her mother took her in and the psychologist talked to her, she talked to the daughter first and then he talked to the mother. Uh, my daughter. Uh, when, my mother, or when her mother came in the room, my daughter, um, the doctor looked at her and the only thing he could say was, wow. Um, so we do not have the half measures var- variety in our family. Um, after hearing about that a little bit, um, I decided to, to research some and I stumbled upon a website. And on this website you could take a test. You know, it had a series of questions that you asked, answered and at the end of the test it would give you a score. And at the end of my test it said, this is not a diagnostic tool. However, you may want to consider seeing a mental health professional. <laughs> so I began to understand the nature of my problem. You know, when I when I when I moved to that from that little town, in Indiana, I was I was a skinny, scrawny, sickly, ugly kid, and and I I was uh, I was uh, I was kind of a mama's boy, and. Uh, I had been beat up by all the guys in the town and some of the girls. And <laughs> we, moved, uh, we moved to Omaha, and I was glad to, to, to leave that behind me, you know, because um, I didn't know until years later that that was called a geographic because I thought when I got someplace else that it would be different, you know. And the thing that I found when I did a four-step was that it was always the next thing that was going to make my life better. I was always looking for a geographic. Well, I got there, and I didn't. I didn't really have goals or dreams or anything, and I. I only had two years of high school left, and I hung around with a bunch of guys. And one day, we were down by the post office in a little part of Omaha we lived in, and there was a guy had a trailer outside. He had a real snazzy suit, you know. And I was ending my high school career, and I didn't know. um, I didn't have plans to go on. um, I didn't. I didn't know about going to college. I. I didn't think I was smart enough. Um, I didn't know how to apply. And I was too proud to ask. Uh, this guy had a sharp-looking suit. And so um, what I found out later, really, is that he's a salesman. Um, but he was selling a product that I thought I wanted. Uh, I wanted the suit. I thought the suit was really nice. Um, it's, it's tough to get, though. Um, and so what, what happened was, um, you know, I wanted to prove that, that being a mama's boy and everything, I really, I really felt it was necessary for me to prove my manhood. And so I went home. Um, I wasn't of age yet. I went home and I asked my mommy if she would, uh, if she would sign a permission slip, and she did. And I took it back to that man in the snazzy suit, and I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> now, if you're a young, um, a young person in this room today, and and you're feeling insecure about yourself, and you want to uh, prove your self worth, I want to tell you right now that's the hard way. Um, <laughs> I entered a, a period of um, uh, the first, the first phase of that is called recruit training um, I had a number of other names for it uh, but I got there and um, and it was not it was not to my liking I was pretty sure that the next thing in my life was going to make me happier uh, you know they talked about a lot of things they talked to me in a manner that I did not approve of um, uh, implied a relationship with my mother that I was pretty sure I'd never had um, <laughs> And and I knew for a fact that when I was born, my parents had been married for 18 years. Um, and uh, and I was I was very glad uh, I was very glad to get out of there. Um, after after I did, I served I served one and, uh, and I got out. And ever since I got out, they've been looking for a few men. Um, that was that was their slogan at the time. And um, and I know that there are some veterans in 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 the room tonight. And. Uh, um, When I was in the Marine Corps and I got out, it wasn't a popular thing in this country, and it was 40 years before anybody ever said that to me, and I will not let a day go by if I ever see a veteran that that doesn't happen in my life today. Um, but I got out of there, um, and I'm not sure who was happier about it, them or me. Um, I embarked on a career. Um, I found out that uh, I found a place where I could put my uh, marine training to good use. I went to work for the post office. (Laughter) um, um, Improved my marksmanship, <laughs> and I, uh, I joined an employee organization, um, more commonly known as a union. And uh, through the years, I became uh, I became active in that uh, organization, and I got elected all the way up. And I was uh, I was finally the vice president. and I was working in the office on a regular basis. Now, I must back up a little little bit, because uh, one of the things that I discovered in my life is that I did not like being alone. You know, I had always been a member of a unit of some kind. Uh, I was I was with my family at first. Um, I was kind of the odd man out in the family. Um, I was way younger. I was a baby. I was spoiled, um, and. A lot of times we talked about them and it, you know we didn 't want them to find out about it. I never knew who they were or what it was, but we did our best to keep it a secret and, and that was um, it was successful with me because they never told me um, and, and that 's probably a good thing because I don't do well keeping secrets um, but But one of the things that I found out that I didn 't do well was being alone now. I had I had been working for the Postal Service for about a year when an old Marine buddy of mine came through town. He knew of a girl that lived in Sioux City, and uh, he said she was lonely and I was lonely. And so I went up and I met her, and two weeks later we got married. Uh, years, years later, um, I found that that's not necessarily the cure for loneliness. Now,
1: uh,
0: we kind of we kind of had some deals going into that thing and, uh, and she broke them all. Um, she got herself pregnant, uh, <laughs> twice.
1: <laughs>
0: um, we had, we had two beautiful girls and, uh, and, uh, that was, uh, uh, one of the things, you know, I, I did not. I had I had left behind a relationship with God. When I was a small boy, my mother had taken me to church, and it was one of those "Amen, hallelujah, everybody but us is going to hell" churches, and uh, and it scared me. You know, I had I had a scary God, a scary concept of a God, and so I got away from that, and I didn't want anything to do with it, and 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 I uh, came to believe that I didn't believe in God. Um, but, uh, but occasionally, even though I, I had come to believe it, I didn't believe I would pray anyway. And one of the prayers I play, prayed when I had these two little girls was that God would um, make them beautiful when they grow up. Now, that's a stupid prayer. Uh, if you're a dad and you find yourself in a circumstance which I was about to find myself in, um, that's not a situation that you want. Um, uh, that marriage didn't work out. Um, may come as a surprise to you. Uh, In retrospect, it doesn't come as a surprise to me. We were married for about four years. Um, And at the end of that marriage, we were, um, we were, hi, Ralph. It's It's not a, I'll tell you, baby, it's not a blizzard. It's not even winter yet. (laughs) I don't know if Marcus warmed a car up and drove you around town, but there's still leaves on the trees. <laughs> oh man. Uh, uh, yeah, but I, I was, uh, uh, I was fighting and spending every nickel, dime, uh, and every nickel and dime that I could beg, borrow, and steal, steal to get custody of those two girls that, that, uh, that we had agreed not to have, and uh, just to prove that our justice system wasn't any better than then than it is today, uh, the judge gave them to me. So I became the custodial parent. I was the first. Uh, Nebraska had just pa- passed something called no-fault divorce. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, my my idea in life is that, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, my, my favorite pre-Al-Anon slogan was happiness is knowing who to blame. And I uh, spent a lot of my life trying to figure out whose fault it was, and I was pretty sure if I could just find that person that, that I could do something to them to change my life, and my life would be okay. But anyway, Nebraska had passed this law, and I I was the first father to get custody of girls in a no-fault divorce in the state of Nebraska. Uh, they were, um, at the time, two-and-a-half and one-and-a-half. And one and they were barely house broke. <laughs> um, and, and what I did was I moved in with my family. Now, I had moved in with them when I got, when I got out of the service. Now, the, the, when I talk about my family, the family at that point had become my two sisters, my brother and my mother. Uh, now the only two people in the family that ever married and had children is my oldest sister and me. I'm the youngest. Um, my brother, uh, my oldest brother, I have to t- I have to tell you about him, he was he was an inspiration to me. Um, he is he is deceased. There's only there's only two of us left, but my, my oldest brother was uh, before the age of political political correctness, what they called mentally retarded. Um, and one time I was trying to get him to do something that was—it was just silly, you know. It wasn't anything that was going to cause him physical harm because I was... Uh, and he looked at me and he said, you know, I'm retarded. I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Some of my earliest memories, when I was a little kid... He he never lived in the home that uh, when I lived there. He had been put in an institution, and uh, they called it the state school. And I never could figure out why they called it the state school because they didn't teach anybody there. They didn't teach anything. Uh, It was a house. They they housed people like him, and uh, and it was scary to me because I was a little kid. Uh, For some reason, all the guys where he lived just loved little kids. Uh, But I remember one time he he would come home in the summertime for vacation, and. uh, And one year, my mother had baked some cookies. And uh, he asked her, he said, Mom, can I have a cookie? She said, sure. So he reached in the cookie jar, and he came out with two, and he says, oh, look, they stuck together. I thought, aha. Now, I didn't know at that point what was wrong with him. I just knew he was different, and he didn't live with us, and he lived in that special place. Now, I'm a quick learner. I said, Mom, can I have a cookie? She said, sure. I reached in there, and I pulled out two, and I said, oh, look, they stuck together. She gave me a spanking. <laughs> beat me within an inch of my life. And I said, well, now, Jim got two cookies, and they stuck together, and you didn't beat him, but you, how come you? And she said, well, he ain't right. And that's when I found out what was wrong with my brother. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I think I had found my calling. You know, if you ain't right, the very least you're going to do is get two cookies. <laughs> and you can get away with a lot of stuff that people that are right can't. But I believe I was somewhere between marriages there, and I had moved back in with this family, you know, and, and I didn't really get along with them because they were just a little different. And they thought because they were providing me with a home that they had a right to tell me, and it was their home, um, that they had a right to tell me how to raise my kids and how to live my life. And... Uh, set of moral standards to adhere to, and i wasn't uh, I wasn't really up for that and uh, as it turns out, I went to my nephew's graduation in Indiana, and while I was there, I met a gal and uh, um, about two months later, we got married <laughs> and uh, she moved out from Indiana now. We lived in a we lived in an apartment, and uh, I was working a night shift. And I would come home, and uh, one of the things that she liked to do she was very fond of rearranging the furniture. She had she had um, taken some home ec classes somewhere, and it was just uh, that was just what she'd do, you know, just make life more interesting. Well, it made more interesting for her. But she would um, I would come in and uh, at night, and I would there was a, there was a switch right inside the door that was that was um, hooked to a, a plug-in, and we always had a lamp plugged in that, and I would turn that on that way I could get around the furniture. Well, one night I reached in, and I'd hit that switch, and, and the light didn't come on, so I kind of backed in the apartment, and I edged my way down the wall till I could hit the light in the kitchen, and I looked around, and the furniture was all gone. And I thought to myself, this marriage is not going well. <laughs> As it turns out, she, um, she had called her father. He had come out from Indiana with his brother in a semi-truck, loaded all the furniture, and it was in Indiana. And so I moved back in with my family and started, again, the process of getting a divorce. Um, well, I didn't get along with my family too well because they thought because I was living in their home um, that they had the right to tell me how to live my cattle live my life and raise my kids and set a, set a bunch of moral standards that I should adhere to. Um, and so there was a party down the street, a couple houses down, some friends of mine, and there was a gal came to this party, um, and I took her out, and we went out for a couple months, and we got married. <laughs> Um, now it may have occurred to you that I was that I had been looking for Miss Wright, uh, and I wasn't. I was looking for Miss Wright now. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and as luck would have it, I kept finding her. <laughs> um, we were married for about two years, and that was a, it was a bad deal. And the honest thing the honest thing that I that I ha- to come to the conclusion, or, or the, the conclusion that I came to, or the thing that was pointed out to me, and this, this was also in the course of my fourth step, uh, the, the process of the fourth and fifth step, was that what I was doing was I was looking for a mother for my children. Um, it was after that marriage that my daughter, who at the time was 11, uh, came into the kitchen one morning where I was sitting, um, preparing to go to work. Um, she looked me in the eye, and she took me by the shoulders, and she said, Dad, we don't need a mom, okay? Okay. <laughs> I hadn't figured it out, but they had. <laughs> well, after that we moved back in with my family. Uh, <laughs> however, something, something very important, uh, a, a very, a very uh, important event had happened. Uh, two weeks after I, I married my third wife, my mother died uh, two weeks to the day. Um, she had gotten her wish. You know, She told me one time, I hope I live long enough to attend one of your weddings. Um, <laughs> And uh, she had been at the third one, and so she left us. Uh, she was kind of like Reggie Jackson used to be with the Yankees. You Remember what he used to call himself? He was the straw that stirred the drink, and that's what she was. She was the glue that held that ha- that house together. Um, she wasn't um, she wasn't gone very long until my brother moved out. Uh, my sisters, as I found out later, didn't much care for each other. Uh, I moved back into that, and it wasn't very long um, until I met a lady. <clears throat> You're getting ahead of me. <laughs> it, it's custom, I don't know what it's like here, but it's customary where I come from to let the speaker tell his story. <laughs> I met a lady who helped me find an apartment, furniture, and she... Uh, um, she had me move in there, and she did not marry me, um, probably the first smart lady I ever met. Um, however, my kids and I were for the first time in our life, and they were junior high age, you know. They were living on their own. And I was working at the post office, and I was trying to raise these two girls, and I was going absolutely nuts. Now, there are a couple of little parts of the story that I have um, eliminated here. The the children's mother, and and I am fully aware today that I do not get to call anybody an alcoholic unless they tell me they're an alcoholic. However, I have also been told that if something waddles like a duck, it has webbed feet, it has feathers, it quacks, and it swims very well, you need to consider the possibility that it may be a duck. (laughs) My first wife was taken to, on occasion, drinking adult beverages to excess in my opinion, um, and she would—it would it would cause her some problems. She suffered short-term memory loss. Um, she forgot, for example, uh, where she lived. <laughs> uh, she was prone to spending the night in places that I didn't think were appropriate. You know, and I thought this was about me. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought it was because I was not a good provider. Um, I was a rotten husband. I couldn't deny that but I thought it was because I was a bad lover whatever you know that I thought that was all about me uh, you know I had a very similar experience with my third wife uh, one night um, she was um, she was in a production at one of our local theaters and she was uh, prone to, you know they would they would have rehearsals one night she came in and uh, it was obvious that she had not come straight home from rehearsal it was apparent to me anyway um, she had difficulty navigating her way in the door and, and found it impossible to lock the door once she got in, and I just happened to be sitting in the kitchen when she came in the house. And I looked at her, and I said, drunk again? She said, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so at about the time I found myself with these uh, uh, with these two teenagers who were, uh, these two teenage girls who were getting heavy into puberty, um, and I was, I was on my own and trying to raise him and going absolutely crazy. Um, an amazing thing happened in my life. Uh, the secretary at that union office was a woman who, uh, who had the misfortune to be married to a man who had to go through treatment because uh, he couldn't handle his drinking. Uh, he was in the Air Force, uh, and he had a very important job. And so they, uh, they gave him the option of either getting a retirement or else uh, getting out, or getting a retirement or getting treatment, so he went to treatment. Um, during the course of that treatment, they did something with her. I don't know what it was, but she told me that she uh, she was going at night to these to these meetings, and she would she would go up to this treatment center. And I noticed that she got to be very a, a very different kind of person. You know, she I could I could tell changes in her life. And she had the misfortune of having a daughter that had the same problem. You know, and the girl was in high school, and I thought that was odd because I didn't think I thought people you know you had to you had to be a certain age and a certain certain status to, to have a drinking problem. Uh, but at any rate, um, I, would, I would come out of the office sometime and she would be reading this little blue book. And she would very quietly fold the book closed, put it in her drawer, and then take care of whatever need I had of her as the as secretary of our office. And I got to asking her questions about that. And some of her friends would come up her friends would come up and visit her, and they were people that, uh, that she had met in this meeting. You know, she would go to these meetings, and, and she had met them, and they would come up, and they would be talking about stuff. And I started asking her questions. And, uh, and then she brought one of her friends up, and it was a lady who was, uh, who was very attractive to me. And uh, I kept trying to take her out. Now, my whole purpose for being here this weekend is to let you know that there are um, there's no wrong way to get here. And there are no hopeless cases. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to take uh, that lady out so badly. Um, and I asked her and asked her. And she was always going someplace. She was always going here. She was always going there. She didn't have time. She had to do this. She had to do that. Um, she had a life. She had two sons um, who were also alcoholic. And I, and I thought that was strange. Um, they were high school boys. And uh, they had both been through treatment a couple of times. But at any rate, I finally, um, I finally um, won the lady. I said, okay, I want to take you on a date. Um, She said, well, this weekend I'm going to something called the Cornhusker Roundup. And I said, could I go with you? And she said, yes. And so I came to my first Al-Anon meeting on a date. (laughs) I was Mr. Slick, Hip, and Cool. I had been married and successfully divorced three times. And, um, and the best deal that I had going was the, was the Cornhusker Roundup. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to the Cornhusker Roundup or if you ever heard of it, but it's something that's quite a bit like this. Now, I didn't think that's what it was. I thought it was something like a rodeo.
1: <clears throat>
0: and I couldn't figure out how they handle horse manure at the Holiday Inn. You know? <laughs> Because it was in this big convention center. And i got to tell you, that was, uh, it was not a spiritual experience, but it was certainly an interesting one the first night I went in there. You see, at that time, it was not politically incorrect to smoke cigarettes. And everybody in that meeting smoked. And it was a room something like this, only somewhat larger, and you could barely see the stage if you were sitting in the back. And at the time, I smoked, a habit that I have since given up. But I couldn't understand why my eyes were watered, and I just I had awful time breathing. And this lady said, "Well, it's because of the smoke." And I said, "Well, yeah, okay, that shouldn't bother me because I smoke." And She said, "No, it bothers you, believe me." But at any rate, that was on August nineteenth, nineteen eighty-three, and that was my my first my first Alanon meeting um, was was that cornhusker roundup, and it was it was I just um, you know it was interesting to me, and it was somewhat amusing because they. They got up and they read 12 something and they read 12 something else, and then they introduced this guy, and, and he'd say, he said his name was John, I believe. He said, My name is John, and everybody goes, Hi, John. I'm like, they were really glad to see him or something, you know. Uh, and he got up there and told the most intimate, disgusting details of his life, and I thought anybody to get up there and do something like that is a fool, you know. <laughs> uh, and at this moment, I. I'm remembering that. <clears throat> but then his wife got up and told the truth. Yeah, yeah. So we had the 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 AA and the Al Anon speaker, and it was it was quite an experience for me. But I went back the next night. I called that lady up on Monday, and um, she. I asked her if she was doing anything, and she said, yeah, I'm going to a meeting. Well, now, I didn't believe that I belonged there. You know, I went with her because that's where she was going, and I wanted to be with her. You see, there are those people, and and apologies to those of you who believe this, that don't believe that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous applies to Al-Anon. I can tell you that there's a phrase that was read last night in Chapter 5 that applies to that very situation. I wanted what she had, and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. (laughs) I do want to tell you, too, because I forget to finish this part of the story off sometimes, that she and I have been happily married for a long time now. She's happily married to a successful member of AA who has got 30 years sobriety, and I've been happily married to my wife, Carol, for 20 years as of July 16th. We are happily married, just not to each other. We did become engaged and eventually disengaged. Uh, but I did on that Monday night when I asked her where she was going. She said, "I'm going to a meeting." I said, "Could I come along?" And she said, "Yes." And I could almost I could hear something in her voice. And what I know now today was that it was the gotcha. You know. uh, because I went to that first Al-Anon meeting that was not the Roundup, and I met a group of people there. And um, as one of the guys that I sponsor puts it, I knew that I had found my tribe. I I under. I identified with what they said, I understood what they said, but I absolutely could not let them know it. you know I, I I had the worst kind of arrogance that you can possibly have, and that was pity because I felt sorry for them because my circumstance of course, was much better. Um, I knew where I was going to spend the night, I knew where my next meal was coming from i 'd had a job I had a good job for a number of years. As I pointed out before, I'd been successfully divorced three times. I had never paid a nickel of child support or alimony. I was raising my kids, and I was so smug and superior that I almost missed it. I almost missed it. I did keep going, though, because I always felt better after I'd been to one of those meetings than I did going in. And I knew that my life could be better somehow. I intuitively knew that my life could change if I could just figure out what it was that they did, um, that lady who was the secretary of our office had already become the president of uh, of Al-Anon. Uh She was uh, she was the leader of the group that I went to first. Uh, we met in the nursery of a church. You know how Al-Anons always meet in the nursery of the kitchen. Um, sometimes it's the basement. Uh, we sat on uh, we sat on chairs that were about half as wide as this podium. Um, a, a feat that I can't figure out to this day, um, you know. Um, but, but I enjoyed the time that I spent there. But I, had, I carried in there a sense of guilt, too. Because, you see, all the people that were there, all the people that talked and shared, had an al- alcoholic in their home. And I didn't have that. And I had never, to my knowledge, you know, there wasn't alcoholism in my family, it wasn't my father, it wasn't my mother, um, it wasn't my kids, And so I didn't, I I felt like an imposter. Um, They talked about a lot of things that I didn't understand. They talked about sponsorship. Uh, They talked about some things I really didn't hear about because they were people just come right out and sit there and talk about God. And I was very uncomfortable with that, you know. I hadn't gone to church for a long, long time. And this reminded me a lot of church because, you know, they, pray at the beginning and they 'd pray at the end and they 'd hold hands and they 'd hug and they 'd talk about God a lot and uh, that part of it made me just a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, I continued to go, however, one of the things that they talked about was sponsorship they said everybody needs a sponsor. well, I would sit in these meetings and there was there were there weren 't that many men in Al-Anon at the time, you know, and uh, when Ralph was talking last night, he brought back a memory to me that, that I thought was gone, another resentment I might add. Um, my uh, I was sitting in a Monday night meeting one night and they had this uh, ask it basket meeting. There was a lady who who would carry this envelope around and whenever somebody who was uh, supposed to have the meeting didn't show up, um, she, would, she would drag the envelope out and she'd pass it around. We'd take something out. And I would invariably get something about describe the spiritual part of your program. How is your relationship with God? And I was going on one night about about my, uh, my lack of a relationship with God. I um, probably wasn't going to get this whole deal because I didn't understand God, because I didn't get God the way you got God. And there was an old guy sitting across the table from me, and he told me the same thing that Ralph Sponsor told him. He said, there's only two things you need to know about God, son, and that's that there is one, and it ain't you. Um, and I thought, you obnoxious old fart. <laughs> <laughs> He was a little gravelly-voiced guy that wore cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. And uh, and I, I kept hearing about sponsorship. And I they went to a meeting, and I had decided that what I was going to do was I was going to ask that lady that, that worked in the union office. I was going to ask her to be my sponsor. And so I went to a meeting one night. She had the meeting. It was on sponsorship, and she talked about women sponsor whim, women and men sponsor men. And I said, well, ain't this something? This guy I don't believe in doesn't want me to get it because I can't get a sponsor because she's the only person I could ask. And I was just on fire about that whole deal about sponsorship. Everywhere I went, I kept hearing about sponsorship. And I was leaving that very same meeting one Monday night, and I just all of a sudden was overcome, and I reached out and I tapped this guy on the shoulders walking down the hall in front of me. I said, well, you be my sponsor. And he turned around and was that obnoxious old fart. <laughs> uh, and I got him back. You know, I paid him back for that, for that telling me that, there, there, that I wasn't God, you know. Um, he said, he, he asked me if I had a sponsor already, and I said, no, I don't. He's, and he got a kind of a crestfallen look on his face, and I think the deal was that he was going to tell me to work with that sponsor, and he, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he didn't want to interfere in that relationship, but he knew he couldn't get out of it that way. He said, okay, we'll try it on a temporary basis, and we did that for 11 years. <laughs> uh, um you know he used to he used to he used to nag and bitch at me about working the steps you know he he characterized it as loving loving reminders and guidance you know uh but he used to he used to be on me he said your life is not going to change until you work the steps and uh i said i don't i don't think i can work the steps i don't think the steps apply to me and one night outside the Friday night meeting, I was standing there, and he was there, and, and the lady who was the secretary in the union office was there. And I said, you know, I just don't think I'm going to come back anymore because this doesn't apply to me. And they looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, well, really, I don't have an alcoholic, you know. And I was referring to the alcoholic in the home. I didn't think that that problem was there. And I got my My first lesson on Tradition Three, where it says the only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or friend. You don't have to bring them along to prove that you got one. (laughs) And and, and so they started listing them for me. You know, I had had not been smart enough to keep my mouth shut. I had talked about the people in my life whose behavior bothered me, and they talked about the first wife, the third wife, the union president, the guy who would, he'd go for a couple of beers. Uh There's a clue for you right there. How many did you have? A couple, <laughs> always. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, you know they they pointed out that these. Are, I said, well, okay, I'm not going to get out that way. So I continued to come, and finally, um, just to shut him up and to prove that the steps wouldn't work in my life, I decided to work them. You know, and the steps are broken down in four groups. Really, um, there's uh, the first the first three about giving up, the second three about owning up, the next three are about Uh, making up in the last four by growing up and we had to we had to work with that you know the idea that I was powerless was uh, was not was not something that I could get my arms around that was an idea that I was not ready to do because you see after all here I was in the circumstance I was in had a job had my kids and I thought that was the only thing in the world you know I thought that made me to cast whiskers he he looked around. He said, "Well, how how successful are you at, at getting these kids? You know, you're always talking about the problems that you have with them." Um, I would call him up and go on and on and on about the kids. You know, uh, and I got to tell you right now, trying to get a teenage girl to do something's like trying to nail Jello to a tree. It's it's uh, it's not going to happen, especially if you're the dad. You know. He said, so so you can surely admit your power. So well I didn't want to take the second step because it talked about insanity and I kept I kept dwelling on that. You know, there's insanity in my family. My grandfather died in a nut house. That's the way it was told to me. I was not not told that he died in an institution or a mental hospital. He died in a nut house. And that was that was a stigma that I was carrying. And one time my mother told me, she said, you know, your grandfather died in a nut house. You've seen how your dad acts. He was a little goofy, and you're not too steady yourself. (laughs) So I kept going on. You know, I was offended by the second step, and I said, I don't like the fact that it talks about insanity. He said, it doesn't talk about insanity. It assumes it. If you're here, you know, I thought, my God. He said, it's not that you're crazy. It's just that you're no longer alone. Everybody here is working the same second step that you are. You know, and then in the third step, he talked about a higher power there that I wasn't comfortable with. In the third step, they came right out and called him God. Wow. You know, well, I really didn't want to do anything with that. And I've already told you what that says about control. Well, I really was working hard at it. And I called him up one night and I said, Leo, Leo, I've done it. He said, oh, God, what have you done now? And I said, well, I've taken the third step. I've turned my will and my life over to God. And he said, that's not what it says. Read it again. And he hung the phone up on me. I punished him. I didn't call him for a couple weeks. But I read the third step again, and I finally, I called him up, and I said, that's what it says. He said, no, it doesn't. It says we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. We've been trying to run it all our lives, and we weren't able to do it. And that's deciding to do it is the first step. And he said, the rest of the steps are what help you carry out that decision. Wow. Well, I was unwilling to do the fourth step because I was pretty sure I was going to find out I was a bad person. He said, let's just assume that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Actually, um, you know, after we got to talking about it seriously, he said, you know, we're, we've all done some things that we'd rather not have done. It doesn't make us bad people. We're not here because we're bad people trying to get good. We're here because we're sick people trying to get better. You know, that's not the purpose in our life. Um, I, I was still unable and unwilling to do a four-step. And one year for Christmas, he gave me a pen and pencil set. Uh, ever Ever the subtle one he was. And I uh, and I postponed it for another um, eight months. That year at the Cornhusker Roundup, there were two speakers. Um, one of them was a was a lady from North Little Rock, Arkansas. Her name is Mary Pearl. Um, she's a dear friend of mine today. I love her dearly. You know, it's it's just incredible the people that you have brought into my life. And the other was a was a an ex nun from Canada named Mildred Mildred F. And uh, I heard those two speakers, and I went home and I called in to work and I said, I will not be in, I have to do. And I started writing and I wrote for two days straight until I had finished my fourth step and I called him and he said, we'll do your fifth step on Saturday. He wasn't going to let me off the hook. Um, And so I went out that Saturday and his wife uh, his wife was a terrorist Um, (laughs) laughter She was an alcoholic, and she was a lady who ran the central office in Omaha, and she was about this tall and weighed 90 pounds soaking wet, you know, with a pocket full of quarters. Um, And that woman used to scare the hell out of me, I'll tell you. Um, One time I was at the Cornhusker Roundup, and they had the store out there, and they had these stickers. And she, um, she said, you need those, you know, and they had them put on a mirror there. And I said, I don't need a mirror, I've got a mirror. And she said, no, you need those stickers. And what they were, little plastic peel-off things. you could put them on and you could even move them from one mirror to another and it says, you're looking at the problem. And so that way you could put that on your mirror and every morning when you go there to shave, you'd see that thing, you know, and understand that you're looking at the problem, okay. Um, So I had done the fourth and fifth step, you know, and I thought uh, six and seven were gonna be really easy because you know, if you read the place where they're originally written down, there's two paragraphs. That's really it. That's all there is, you know. But that's where the rubber meets the road. That is the hardest part of my life that I've ever had to do. We're entirely ready to have God remove all our defects of character. I have no idea how to tell you how to do that. I have to be sick and tired. I have to to be laying on the floor, throwing a fit, banging my head, kicking my feet, and beating my fists until I am entirely ready to have God remove all my defects of character. And then came one of the most forgiving things that I have ever experienced in my life was the seventh step. Now, a lot of people don't think of that as forgiveness, but it is. You see, it had been pointed out to me, I, was, I never had a shortage of people that pointed out to me in my life my character defects. Um, they were never put that way. They were called sins or they were called my bad behavior. behavior. They were called things that I did wrong that I was a bad person, I was doing the wrong thing, and I should change these things. And I would try and do it. Every once in a while, I'd be so overcome by something that I would try and I would I would make a decision to change my behavior, and, and I would go about it, and my decision, my resolve would probably last, you know, uh, for some of the more difficult ones, um, not very long at all. For some of the ones that I really worked on and, and uh, did good, it was a couple of days. But, you know, I was never successful in changing my, lives and the seven, uh, changing my life and, and, uh, and uh, straightening out my behavior. But the seventh step told me what I was doing wrong. So we humbly asked. You see, I was trying to do something I wasn't qualified to do. God gave me those defects of character, and he's the only one that could take them away. And I was slowly but surely becoming more comfortable with the idea of not only hearing the word God, but actually um, uh, admitting that there was a higher power in my life. Um, one of the things that I that I demonstrated um, to my sponsor and, and those in the meetings with me on a regular basis was the fact um, that I wouldn't participate in the saying of the Lord's Prayer at the end. I said, it's a Christian prayer, I'm not going to say it. It finally irritated my sponsor enough, and he called He called me aside one night after the meeting. He said, you know, you stand there looking so arrogant and so smug, and so do you know the prayer? And I said, yeah, and he said, then say the prayer. He said, we have a, a concept of service, but it applies to your life as well, and that is that participation is the key to harmony. And if you want to participate in the group and you know the prayer, it's good for you to say it. I'm not saying anybody else has to do that, but he thought it would work for me, And you know what, it hasn't hurt me yet. Um, We made an eight-step list, I made an eight-step list, and I wrote down everybody and everything. He said he thought that was a little grandiose. Um, But he told me that on that eight-step list, one of the things that he had me do, he says, one thing I want you to do is write it down. Don't keep it in your head, because I know how your magic mind works. And uh, I will rationalize and justify people right off of that list. he had me write it down. He had me put on there the people that deserved it. But I had to put down everybody I had harmed. And he said, you can put them in three columns if you want. And I'm sure you've all heard this before, but I put them in the ones I had to do because they were eating my lunch, the ones that I would do when, when I saw them. Uh, and it would become convenient. And I, would, I had a column for those that I would do when hell froze over. Now, um, it's very cold outside today.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and my list is complete. Um, there was one that was very expensive for me, and it was very difficult to find the guy to make the amends to. But I was able to do it, and and I'm grateful for that today. You know, um, the ninth step, um, making making those amends uh, was not fun, and it's a step that I learned that uh, I learned to rely on sponsorship more and more as um, as I went on, uh, because the first amends that I thought I made. Uh, was not an amends at all. It was one of those deals where I was trying to get off the hook and feel better about myself, and I did it at somebody else, somebody else's expense, and I hurt two people's feelings, um, and almost got punched in the face. Uh, so I've always um, involved my sponsor in the amends making process. You know, step ten, um, step ten was kind of a shock to me. And there's uh, there's another another bunch of forgiveness right there. You know. I thought to somewhere after step nine, um, after I had straightened out the wreckage of my past, that I would uh, be uh, ordained Saint D, and that people would uh, drive by the house just to see where I lived. Uh, oh, there he is on the porch. Uh, and uh, that's not the way it is, you know, because we have to go on living life. And step ten continued to take personal inventory. And when, you know, God, I hate those single words in these steps that just tear you up. When we were wrong. There's a guarantee of humanity right there. We know we're going to do it just because we're human beings. We're going to screw up. It's okay. But we have to promptly admit it. Don't have to beat yourself up. Just admit you were wrong. Gosh, that's difficult. Do you remember that time? Do you you remember the show Happy Days and Fonzie, you know? And he tried to say it one time. I, I, I didn't mean to do it you know that's kind of the way I had to do it because I it was it was very difficult for me to admit i was wrong you know the 11th step was tough for me I, although i was improving that relationship um i didn't understand prayer um i had i, I had told you about that little church that my mom had taken me to you know and they had guys there that could pray for 45 minutes without taking a breath and i thought that's what what it was you know and i thought you had to pray on your knees i found out there aren't any rules you know and in one of our little pamphlets that they used to have it says every good thought is a prayer, and I couldn't I I couldn't think that. You know, the most common prayer that I ever say is help, you know, or oh God, because something's happened that I don't have any control over. The prayer that we, that I most often forget is thanks. You know, a little friend of mine named Tina told me one night said, "In the morning, all you have to do is, is is say help, and at night say thanks. Two words, that's not that difficult." The thing that was troubling about the 11th step was that somebody pointed out to me that that my praying didn't do anything for God. That the prayer was for my purposes. Said Because it says in there, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our, there's another one of those little words, our conscious contact with God. Wow. Well... That got better. I still didn't feel good about, about the way I was praying. And I was in a meeting one time with a guy named Keith, and I hope I never forget Keith because he taught me a lesson that was marvelous. Um, he said, you know, I used to know a guy who thought he ought to have to pray on his knees, and he just couldn't get down there because he had said, I am never going to bow my knee to anybody or anything ever again. And so what he would do at night was he would take his shoes and throw him back under the bed. And then at the morning when he was down there fishing his shoes out, he was already there, and he wasn't there to bow himself or to, to humble himself, but he would just throw up a good word anyway. Well, now, I am an Al-Anon, and I know that your shoes do not belong tossed under the bed. Uh, you should be properly organized, and they should be in the closet with the left on the left and the right on the right. <laughs> and before you put them in there, you should have polished them. And so... Um, but I did have an electric blanket, and it had a control on it. you know. And so at night I would slide that control back on it underneath the bed. Uh, now remember, I am an Al-Anon. There are some of, the, some of those on the other side of the program that think we are a less intelligent. I wasn't smart enough to figure out that if I had got a hold of the cord, I could just drag that thing back out of there and turn the blanket <laughs> off. But I was down there fishing around in the dust bunnies, and I started throwing up a good word, you know, and I was able to get down. And it doesn't say, it doesn't say anywhere except in that first draft of the big book. means that anybody ever has to do that, but it's good for me to do it. It helps me with my humility. You know, in the 12th step, the 12th step is the one where I thought we'd really get screwed, you know. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps... You know, we don't talk that much about that part of the step when we, when we talk about the 12th step. What, what, is, what ends up getting talked about in meetings, I find, is that we talk about carrying the message. You know, My sponsor tells me I have to be real careful when I think I'm carrying the message because I may be spreading the disease. Uh, but the result of all these steps is a spiritual awakening. Now, my little friend Tina, once again told me one time, I said, you know, I don't, I don't think that's right, you know, because I, th- I, I'm, I was kind of counting on the big house on the hill and, and uh, hoping for the blonde and the Porsche, and uh, none of those things were happening for me. She said, well, all you get is a spiritual awakening. And I said, that doesn't seem like it's a, it's a good deal because I went through all this. <laughs> she said, you know, I read somewhere once where a spiritual awakening is not anything more than a personality change and if you get that, you got a hell of a deal.
1: Um, I
0: didn't call her for a couple of weeks either. And I'm grateful today um, that that's all I got, you know. That has been the greatest gift, and I got it because of you. I didn't get it because of me. You know, and, and I thought that after I worked the steps, those steps that wouldn't work in my life, that gave me the spiritual awakening and brought me closer to my God, um, I thought that that was what what there was, you know? But that's not all there is to life. You know, life still happens. Um, Ralph talked last night about being forged in a valley. You know, and this is a mountaintop experience for us, but we cannot live here. We cannot stay in this room. We cannot stay in our meetings. We have to go out into the world, and life continues to happen, and what you give me is what helps me to deal with life. A number of years ago, I was getting ready to go to a meeting. And one of the things that my sponsor um, uh, chides me with is that if something is inconvenient for me, that's a pretty good sign that I need to do it. Uh, My sister called me and she said, I'd like to talk to you. I got something I want to tell you about. I was on my way to a meeting. I uh, I had a spiritual purpose. I was going there to help those people. And uh, uh, so I said, okay, I can give you a couple minutes on the way to the meeting. And I, was, I really was literally going out of the house. So my wife and I stopped over there, and she said, I have to, uh, I have to go to the doctor uh, on Monday morning, and I'd like for you to go with me. Um, she said, uh, they found a lump under my arm, and they took it out, and they're going to they're do some looking at it, and then uh, Monday they're going to tell me what's going and, uh, and I had a difficult time going to that meeting tonight. Uh, you know I, I gave her a hug before I left, and I went on to the meeting, and I was grateful at that time that that's where I was going, because I needed that meeting worse than any meeting. Um, I went to her I went with her to the doctor on, uh, on the next Monday, and uh, and he threw a, he threw an x-ray up on the on the wall, and he looked at her and he said, "What you've got is a, is a non-small cell carcinoma." It started in your lungs, and we can't even find the primary site now, and it has metastasized to your liver. Now, this is a sister who I had parted on bad terms with when I moved out of that house. Uh, She'd been a sister who was the closest to me in age, but we had never been close. And um, she asked me to take care of her and to help her with the last part of her life. And with your help, I was. From the day of that doctor's visit until the day she took her last breath was 140. Um, I spent a lot of time with her in that. She had always been, for God knows what reason, a Chicago Cubs fan. <laughs> I have, um, she just liked them, you know. Um, as a result of my playing in Little League and having a paper route and uh, being in 4-H, I had gotten to go to Chicago when we lived in Northern Indiana a number of times to go to ball games, and she had never been. Um, I took her to Wrigley Field to a ball game. At the, at the bottom of the first half of the first inning, um, the Cubs were down five to nothing. And she looked at me and she said, well, at least I got to see a game in Wrigley Field. Um, they won the game. Um, it was it was an unbelievable experience. And all the way home, we flew in in the morning, we flew out at night. But all the way home, she held my hand. If she were alive today, we would be somewhere together, I'm sure, eating some apple pie a la mode with a slice of cheese on top of it. And I would be telling her what a burden it was to be the only skill in under 70 because today would have been her 70th birthday. Um, you helped me through my daughter losing a baby. Um, that was one of those things that was the most painful thing I have ever watched in my life. She labored for 50 hours, and she knew going in that that's all that was going to happen. It was one of the most difficult things that I have ever had to do, but I did that with your help. Two years ago, my mother-in-law came to live with us, um, she had a pet name for me that I won't mention from the podium. Uh, <laughs> um, she had, this was her second trip at Living With Us. She had lived with us once before, and it got so bad that my wife asked her to leave. She found an apartment. Uh, a number of things happened in between. Uh, we moved. Uh, my mother-in-law got sick. She had not been to a doctor for 60 years. She got to the hospital, and what she died from basically was being 96 years old. But she came to live with us, and she lived with us for two years, last two years of life. And because we had moved into a house where we were pretty sure we, wouldn't, we would never find anything, we thought we were going to grow old and die in the house that we'd lived in. Um, we, uh, she came to live with us, and uh, she died on June 16th, exactly a month before our 20th wedding anniversary. That marriage is a blessing from you. I met my wife in an on meeting. And we married in 1989 on the 16th, and we got married in the Betty Ford Garden of the, of the Gerald Ford birth site, Gerald Ford, Omaha, and they have a park there where his house is. Um, we got married in the Rose Garden. There were some people in the program that found it interesting that it was the Betty Ford Garden, considering. Uh, <laughs> um, we That marriage has not always been a bed of roses. You know, it is not, uh, you know, the idea that we come here and we live happily ever after is a myth. You know, but what what has happened, you know, is we have gotten the gift. We have 12 steps, we have 12 traditions, and we have sponsors. We talk to those people, we try and live the steps, put the traditions to work in our marriage. Uh, We had a spot where, as my wife characterized it, we were becoming polite roommates. I don't remember it being all that polite. (laughs) At least I didn't feel polite. Uh, and we went through a class at our church, and that was one of the things that helped us. You know, it helped us greatly. Uh, when we married, we had the passion and the romance and all that. You know, and that's present in our life today. We have that. It's promised in the, in the big book. It talks about into action. You know, there is not a chapter into thinking. And I thought that I could, uh, I thought I could think my way out of anything. And my sponsor told me one time that my, I should treat my head like a bad neighbor. It talks about there, if we go into action, it is an experiment.